Hi, it's Sophie Pascoe here and you're listening to my podcast, Outside the Lanes. A podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. To take on any challenge successfully, first you need to take care of yourself. As a Westpac ambassador, I've been exploring specific areas of growth to inspire you and I to achieve whatever we set our sights on. This is a podcast series that focuses on key themes that are very personal to me, such as leadership, values, balance, health, and more. I have carefully selected mentors who are successful in their field to have beautiful conversations with. In each and every episode, I will be asking a new interviewee about their learnings, their challenges, their wins, their journey, ultimately getting under the skin of what it takes to be in their lane. Today I'm talking all things Korea with Jessie Wong, the founder and creative director behind New Zealand's luxury leather goods label, You May. We talk about what it takes to persevere in such a competitive industry and what inspires her ethos behind her brand. As a university student, Jessie was frustrated by the slim range of bag options that would comfortably carry the weight of her A3 visual diary, laptop, chargers, sunglasses case and all additional handbag essentials, while meeting her desire of classic and elegant style. She set out to make her own and immediately she had friends asking for them. Then a local store picked them up and soon you may have found a market at the New Zealand Fashion Week. With a demand that quickly outgrew what Jessie was capable of hand-producing, she added a couple of people to her team and then took the production to an esteemed manufacturer in China, which was a three-year journey and one that involved rejection, perseverance and the guidance of informed people within the industry. So what does it take to succeed? Jessie talks about the sum of her experiences, being a relentless door knocker and leading with honesty and authenticity, which trickles through her brand. When COVID struck her small retail business, Jessie worked extremely hard to keep the morale of her team high and utilised digital strategies to maintain momentum with sales. Jessie is incredibly relatable. She is a wonderful example of an entrepreneur from New Zealand who started with an idea and persevered to turn a dream into reality. I loved this conversation and I hope you do too. Just a small disclaimer for context, this episode was recorded in December of 2020, that aside, I'll leave you with this beautiful conversation with Jessie. Enjoy. Hi, Jessie. Welcome to Outside the Lanes. Hi, Sophie. Thank you so much for having me. Jessie, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're the creative director of the premium leather goods label, You May. Where did it all start and um, how did you get into fashion? I actually started You May when I was a student in Dunedin. So I couldn't find a bag that would carry my A3 visual diary, my laptop, my phone charger, Sunny's case, makeup bag, you know, all of the things that you needed in a day as a modern working woman. And I just thought it was a really obvious gap in the market. Actually didn't make them with the intention of really like selling them and going in this direction for the brand. I studied fashion. Um, you know, I had a background in making clothes, garments, tailoring. I loved drape and all of those things. So handbags were interesting because we were sent all of these offcuts of leather from a tannery in Timaru, which was quite close to where I studied. And I just started making them. And obviously, I think when you have a problem, there's probably a hundred other people who have the same issue and can't find the right product. And so just started making them, selling to my friends. The store that I worked at, Slick Willies, picked them up. And pretty soon, you know, we were at 
New Zealand Fashion Week hosting um, sales appointments. So it just kind of was quite organic and driven by demand that was obviously there. You already have a creative background, Mm -hmm. but what really drove you into going completely down a whole new path rather than obviously the typical fashion path of like a clothing line? Mm -hmm. Well, I think probably like anything, when you connect all of the dots back, you see how what you're doing now is just the sum of all your experiences. And I had always wanted to have a business, whether that was going to be a magazine or a fashion label. I didn't know, but I did know that I wanted to have something that was my own from quite a young age. And I also sewed from about 11. So I had all of the skills, probably not particularly good at that time, but enough to piece things together. So that those two kind of merged. And I think the reason why I went in the direction of luxury leather goods was because for that reason, I couldn't find what I needed. And then when I started making them, it kind of just took off. And then I've been catching up ever since. So it was pretty organic and we just, you know, met the demand and they've gone well. So, you know, <laughs> we just oh, followed it. Oh, they've gone incredibly well. And you may has been running close to six years now and it's had amazing success. Can you provide our listeners with some insight into the fashion industry and the challenges that come with the fashion industry? So, I mean, it's been a raft of things, you know, baptism by fire for me because I started the brand straight after I graduated and didn't go and work anywhere else. They had done some internships and bits and pieces. But I think what originally drew me to the fashion industry is that, you know, you're always creating something. And I think running your own business, especially small businesses in New Zealand, you have to be across so many different areas, points of view, supply chain, building relationships with all of your tanneries, et cetera, um, traveling to do that, sales, photo shoots, stylists, design, and then brand and marketing and everything. So it's like you get, you know, this beautiful melting pot of all these different experiences. One of the most interesting things that I think is the most valuable is really like the supply chain side of things and understanding exactly what you want to achieve because basically the options are sort of infinite out there and there's no real manual to just Google how to make a luxury leather bag. You really have to spend a lot of time in that process learning And when I was in Dunedin, there was a guy called Bill Drake who did a lot of leather craft and he sort of was one of the last remaining um, sort of craftsmen who taught me how to do edge dye and trim leather and how to put a belt together or how to hot emboss, which is actually seems easy when you look at it, but it's a whole combination of time, pressure and heat to get it right. And it's something that you just have to get a feeling for. It's the same with the tanning process as well. So I think, you know, that's one of the hardest things, but also what I've enjoyed the most is building up all those relationships and being able to have a supply chain with such integrity that, you know, I count kind of every single hand in the process along the way as family. So that's been interesting. And then, of course, you have to grow a team. You have to design to ranges that will sell really well and balance your creativity with the commercial aspects. How have you learned and grown being a leader? Well, that's actually been one of my favourite elements of the business. We have just such an epic team, you know, kind of like family, but all know each other so well, but also everyone's boundaries. And it's just like this great machine that works together. I think I was very fortunate when I started UMA, I won a scholarship, which was $10,000. And they put me through this year-long course, which was Women in Leadership. So I learned a lot of 
skills there that then I could apply when we started building because that was quite early on. And it's definitely challenging. You have to learn how to communicate with every individual. Everybody's different. Everybody has different ambitions and goals. But it's really, I had a proud moment a few weeks ago when we had an offsite strategy day and we created, we worked with a system called OKRs, so Objectives and Key Results where, you know, we kind of figure out where we want to go and we break that down into little steps and we just um, divvy that out and make sure it's all working together. And one of my team members, Adrian, who is our production manager who's been with the company for the longest, kind of just piped up and said, I love this because it feels like a social contract between us and we each have to do our part if we want to achieve, you know, X, Y, Z, our big goal. And they were big, lofty goals, and I was just so proud that everybody was excited about them and didn't think they were crazy, that we could do it, and had a lot of self-belief. So it's been fun and interesting, and I definitely think that building team is probably the most important aspect of any business. Oh, totally. I can absolutely relate that with my own journey and my swimming career. Having a team behind you is so valuable that you have to give 100% and you expect the 100% back, but that's created through trust Mm. and respect. So Mm. it sounds like you're very much a trusting and respectful team leader. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get onto the manual job yourself? Are you there making the bags? How are they made and where are they made? So we have... Well, this has developed over time. This is the supply chain I was talking about earlier. But um, so the first sort of 500 bags I made myself. Wow. And I think it's really important to have that background of being able to actually physically make the product and understand the process if you're going to go and then build that and get other people to do it. So I suppose that was kind of what I really loved. I think like 90% of my wardrobe used to be made by me and I love making. And then Adrian came on board and we were just like relentlessly making all these bags and orders went from like hundreds of bags to thousands of bags. And then we kind of were like, okay, well, we need to figure this out properly if we really want to grow. So originally we made everything in-house, but obviously not sustainable. I remember we um, had one period where we stayed up for four days and three nights in a row. And I remember 6 a.m. on the fourth day, I was on the rivet press and my hands were bleeding and I was just crying. Adrian had fallen asleep on the floor. Um, so it's, you know, character building. Just not to say we didn't have fun that entire time. We seriously did. And I love that story, but I'd never want to do it again. So we started growing and developing our production team. We have an atelier in Wellington where we make custom products, but then we also have another part of the Yume family. Well, it's kind of global now. So we had our tannery in Timaru, so they were part of the process. Now we get some leather from France. We go over to Italy sometimes where there are a lot of tanneries, and Japan also does some Dianapa as well. And then our manufacturing is in Dongguang in China, and they are such an amazing family-run business one of the biggest manufacturers in the world. And it took me about three years to get them on board, but they just have the most impeccable craftsmanship. You know, most people have worked there for about 20 years, if that tells you anything about how much skill they've built up throughout the company. So how does one be able to actually grab the contacts of these people and create a relationship to start off and have a manufacturer obviously make your bags? Yeah, I mean, you have to be 
a relentless door knocker and you have to just be prepared to fly to Italy and go to some random town on a train and then get yelled at in Italian or um, (laughs) not know where you are in the middle of China and just turn up and say hi and put your best foot forward. That connection came through our tannery New Zealand Light Leathers. They're super well-known and they're very world-class. And again, it's one of those things you just can't Google it. These places have all of the top clients like um, Prada and Hermes, Louis Vuitton. And so it's a secret little world that you have to start kind of chipping away and unpicking. And it took me about three years to get them to take me seriously. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, the first time I met them, they were kind of like, oh, well, that's super nice. Like, we love the brand, da da da, da. You're obviously like very small. This is sort of four years ago. But work on it and like keep going. We want to see how much you can grow in a year and then come back and we will, you know, take another look and talk again kind of thing. But they also said they remembered this time. He's like, oh, I met this woman like 20 years ago. Her name was Tori and she wanted 50 wallets made. She didn't have a brand, but we said yes, because we just really believed in her. And now you know, that woman was Tori Birch and she has a billion dollar fashion company that they are like family. So he was kind of like, you remind me of, <laughs> which I know is like a funny thing to say, but um, so that's why they've taken on such a small brand, but they really are like family and they want to help grow the business um, together. So it's really lovely. Oh, that's incredible. So a lot of perseverance and determination. Yes. You're an absolute competitor. And just asking Uncle Barry, our tannery guy, you know, Barry, can you tell me who? And he's like, oh, they're, you're too small. And I'm just like, oh, but come on, like, just send an email. It'll be fine. Oh, <laughs> so I think that classic kind of Kiwi, very like nudge, nudge. Give uh, me an intro. <laughs> <laughs> How do you find New Zealand's fashion industry? Well, look, to be honest, I think there's more than enough to go around in New Zealand and globally. And We have such a cool contingency of designers at the moment who are all very supportive of each other and we've kind of grown up together in a way. Brands like, you know, Wynn Hamlin or Paris Georgia, even some of the shops like Corley and Wellington, everybody's kind of been doing it at the same rate and growing and learning. And then there's been different experiences along the way, but, you know, we used to go and do sales appointments and share a hotel room with Wynn so that we would save costs. And so I think it's all very supportive and there's a lot of sharing of information. I think that's, you know, only to the strength of New Zealand designers because we have such a interesting point of difference being from New Zealand. And so if we all come together and work together and then compete with the world, we're in much better stead. And so I love to see that happening around. And there's a, a group called Mindful Fashion New Zealand who is doing a great job of bringing everyone together at the moment. Amazing. How do you juggle being a boss, being a creative director, being a leader, and how do you get to be Jessie Wong? Well, I think they're all one and the same. So that that blur, I mean, I think it's maybe an outdated sort of thing that you have to have separation when actually, you know, it's just all blurry and it's it's part of life and you're not going to ever be siloed in one or the other. So I think I'm definitely, you know, I am my work and that was also my Jessie Wong personality as well, you know, it's all the same. So how do you get to relax? A few things. There's a really great yoga studio up from my house. Jack, my partner, has a garden, which I don't do anything for, but I love to take credit for. (laughs) Um, But, you know, just um, hanging out at home, 
we have family dinner every Tuesday with my parents and we have a great group of women who have this Zoom call every Friday morning. So I'm looking forward to that tomorrow. And they're all, you know, female CEOs, quite amazing businesses. But on the chats, we always just talk about like, how are you and mindfulness and eating well and getting sleep and and all of those things. And so I think that always helps pick me up. Those relaxing moments for you, they obviously are handcrafted into your bags in a way. Is there somewhere that you get that inspiration to be able to create these bags? Where does that come from? So the inspiration for the bags is really interesting. They're all named after or designed for a personality of someone close to me that had a need that wasn't being met. So all real people, you know, it's not celebrities. We're designing for our community of really forward-thinking women who are just incredible. So for example, there's a small bag, I actually have it with me today in my big bag, that is named after my great-grandmother Vi. And Vi was a woman very ahead of her time. She wore pants, she shirked expectations, she smoked from a long cigarette holder, she hung around with artists and just did all of the things you weren't really supposed to do as a woman in the 40s. And she said towards the end of her life that her one regret was all the parties that she missed which is such a fun thing to reflect on. And so we made a little party bag in honour of her that can just hold your cards and lipstick and all of those things. But then equally, you know, our top selling bag, the Brady bag, is designed to fit, you know, all of those things I mentioned earlier, your laptop, study notes, charger, all of the things to park up at the uni library for the day. And I think that's a very real need and inspiration that kind of was being overlooked. And I think just the system of bags inspired by real people is, yeah, really where all of that creativity comes from. Oh, I love the story from each bag then. (laughs) Do you have a favourite bag? No, oh, I get (laughs) That's like asking who your favourite child is. No. On PC. Fair enough. (laughs) But I mean, change it season to season. At the moment, I wear the Claudia tote a lot, which is named after Claudia Batten, sort of digital entrepreneur. And she's the one who leads our group on Fridays. But that's a huge travel kind of size bag that has a slot at the back that you can unzip and it can fit over your suitcase. So if you're running from plane to wherever, you won't lose it. And the Rebecca bag, which is named after a really good friend of mine, Rebecca Tock, a very classic ladylike style. And so those are the two I'm using at the moment, but couldn't pick a favourite. Obviously, uh, seasons change dramatically. Mm -hmm. You know, we're starting to see eras come back to life in the 2000s now. Do you find that challenging, you know, having to keep up with the rest of the worlds and different seasons and and where is New Zealand at in terms of leading that fashion forward? Mm, Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting question around sustainability and mindfulness about consumption because, no, I actually don't feel the pressure to keep up with trends. Yume is a very classic kind of brand with everlasting styles that should carry you through life and only get better with age. And I think what we're doing with our inventory now is an approach that you'll start to see a lot of brands taking, but our collections are not siloed into sort of a time frame anymore. They're colours that run together and tell an ongoing story. So if you bought something in 2017 and then something in 2020, you know, those two items would work together, hopefully, or that's what we're working towards. So a very, in a way, sustainable inventory that you don't have to go on sale. Because, I mean, the product doesn't devalue with time. And the DNAPR is 
from our land. It's all South Island farmed and tanned Dianapa and we are so, so lucky to have this incredible resource in Aotearoa. And I think not enough people kind of know that story and, and understand where that comes from. It's all a byproduct of the New Zealand venison industry and it's diverted from landfill with its use as a bag. So very, very lucky to be able to use that. So the seasons don't go on sale and they all run together. And I think that's our approach and that's just who we are and that aligns with um, the team and I's values. So we do have our archive event once a year where we will grab any random scrap and we use everything end of line and make up multicolored bags and just random bits of pieces and they're all kind of one-off bespoke items and so that's kind of our contribution to you know using up any end of line materials and, and reducing our waste as much as possible. I love that. And actually, speaking of sustainability, you have a sustainability practice uh, with people bringing their old bags back to you. Yes, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So our buyback initiative, I think, stemmed from the fact that I used to make all of the bags. So people do thrash their items and from time to time are not sure how to care for them. But I think because if people understood that these are all handmade products, which I think they do increasingly now, and how to care for them and how to give them their best, longest life. The buyback initiative was kind of grown out of that train of thought where I was like, okay, well, I've put this much effort into making it, you know, my heart and soul. And so I really want to educate people on how to look after them. What would incentivize, you know, that care throughout the life of ownership of a bag? And we thought, well, if we offered a you may credit or something, you know, when if your needs changed and you were done with that item and it could be refurbished and sold on to someone else to be loved even further, that would be incentive to me to look after something really well. The better you're looked after it, the more credit you get. And we have all of this information on our website and care products on how to do that. But it's really, um, you know, a nod to product stewardship and that's really what we're about. And I think as long as something is looked after beautifully, there's no reason why it can't, you know, keep going well past my generation or the next. So, Look, I'm just going to touch a little bit on the challenges that mm-hmm. a workplace, a brand, a company faces that we can prepare as much as we can, uh, mm-hmm. but we don't prepare ourselves for the unplanned. And obviously with COVID-19, mm. none of us obviously uh, prepared ourselves for this. Can you speak Tell us a little bit about how the recovery is going from COVID-19 or how affected you may. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, when anyone brings up challenges at the moment, that's got to be top of mind for everyone. And truly, when I think of this year, that lockdown period, I know a lot of people had a, either a really good time or a really bad time. And, it, you know, it's sort of somewhere in the middle. It was probably the most challenging time that I'd had in business ever because when it happened, I mean, we were aware that something was going to happen and we'd been as prepared as we could. But when it did happen, I was sort of like, where is this going to leave us on the other side? Is it actually going to be four weeks or is it going to be longer? I think the first thing was just reassuring the team and and trying to keep morale high. Like everybody's still got their jobs. Everybody's still going to be paid. Of course, I had some really big leather bills and like things that we needed to pay for. And obviously with no revenue, you know, where do you go from there? So 
the challenge really was getting on that Zoom call every single morning and pepping the team up and putting all of my energy into that and hoping that everybody was okay and trying to just do our best to look after everyone. But at the same time, because everything was, you know, all bets were off, the fashion industry was just wide open there for the taking. I was just so proud of the team that we worked so hard over those four weeks and we put together a online digital event. We just thought, okay, well, it's not an essential item. We can't ship. We're not going to sell anything. But we hosted this event and we had 11,000 people there. Wow. And it was in the second week of lockdown. It was incredible. And I think that gave the team so much energy, showed them their own resilience that we were able to do this and still connect with our community despite everything. I think we sold 600 bags in 17 minutes. So any worry about cash flow was gone. And then, yeah, it was just nice. But I think at the same time, super uplifting. And I'm so proud that we got there, but it was so hard. It was so hard to um, keep the energy going the whole way through. And I was worried, you know, some of them were in flats and I just wanted everyone to have the right, you know, resource and support around them. And it was a hard time for everyone. Yeah. So I don't know. I felt exhausted after that lockdown. And then I was like, is the year done? (laughs) That was definitely our biggest challenge. I think um, everyone can agree that it's uh, been a challenging year and, uh, you know, we're all in a recovery process now and putting new plans in place and and new goals in place. Uh, Mm. Obviously, in terms of my situation, making a new goal for myself, uh, what is the future of you may looking like? Have you got new goals set? Yeah, yeah, we have. I think there was that kind of limbo period after lockdown and then the second lockdown where... You know, it was just sort of really hard to plan, but I think we're all quite goal and process driven people. And so it's taken us a little bit of time and just really like reassessing where we want to go. And I've got a great advisory board who's been really instrumental in helping me with that. But no, I think we're charging on. We've got a real focus on our digital community. We soon after that event where we saw so much love, um, we launched Club You May which is a real focus on the community that has built itself around the brand. Very fortunate to have those people championing us on. And um, so next year is a bit of a focus on export. But like I said, you know, all bets are off. We can't do it the traditional way. We can't go and do sales appointments overseas. We're in David Jones throughout Australia. So the focus for the next six months will be supporting that and building into the Australian market, but all in totally different ways, which is kind of fun. You know, like we can just do it the way that makes sense to us instead of trying really hard to fit in with the way that fashion business is traditionally done. So a lot of focus on digital eventing, online, all of those fun things. How do you navigate being part of a huge international industry like fashion uh, when you're based in little old New Zealand? Well, I mean, the internet is a great place and um, brings down a lot of those walls. I like it. I mean, it's a novelty when you've come from New Zealand and people are like, oh, really, New Zealand, like all the way? I'm like, yep, they have planes. Um, (laughs) I mean, I don't have any other experience to compare it to. So I imagine that if you were in New York or London, the connections would be a lot more organic and you'd know so many people. But I think it's just different. And you're also, you know, we're on an island. So the ideas 
that you can bring forward and the creativity is not necessarily influenced by all of that culture, which gives you a bit of a point of difference. And with everything being digital these days, it almost doesn't matter that you're so far away. I mean, you probably don't know what you're missing out on, if, you know, but I think it's it's all to our strength and I really enjoy being in New Zealand. I think there's honestly no place I'd rather be at the moment. Um, mm. And, you know, traditionally you could have always just jumped on a plane and been somewhere. So I think it's great. We're so lucky, uh, very much proud Kiwis sitting here. Mm. Going right back to day one, where do you grow up? Uh, you obviously have a very supportive family. Yes. Uh, you're quite a determined and driven person, obviously. Was there a bit of competitiveness in the family at all? So I am a third generation um, Chinese New Zealander. My dad's side of the family came over in 1907. And then my mum's side of the family is from Dunedin, South Island, um, which is you know why I enjoyed studying down there so much. My grandma was there and my aunties. So we grew up in Island Bay, which is in Wellington on the South Coast. Went to Island Bay School and had a great little community around us there. Most of my family is actually in medicine. So my mum is a dentist, my dad's a doctor. They don't do that anymore and they've since started their own businesses, which is interesting. Kind of a hybrid um, between my sister and I because my sister's a dentist and I'm in business. And then my brother is just like amazing achieving things overseas that um, have nothing to do with either. But um, obviously a very supportive family. You are obviously a very close and supportive and you're obviously all very, very successful and that must have started way back and with them obviously pushing you to be the best and get the best out of you, which is, that's exactly what, you know, my family is like and, you know, there are some obviously families that, you know, don't have that luxury yeah. um, with having parents that push their kids to be the best who they can be. I heard a really great phrase, um, pressure is a privilege, mm. you know, and I think that's so true. Not everybody has people that will, you know, be hard on them and really, you know, push them to achieve the most. It comes from generations ago. My family are like hustlers <laughs> because, you know, they came from China and it was really hard and they were literally in absolute poverty. My gungong was actually sold, so my granddad was sold by his biological family to another family who was still not very well off at all for food money. And so when they came to New Zealand, they didn't even have any English or anything and were ostracized and there was the poll tax and all of these things against them. But they just put their heads down. They started a fruit shop. I think they had saved like as much as they could to pay the poll tax, which was a hundred pounds, which was more than a house in those days. And they all started fruit shops because you could go to the fruit markets, you could buy everything that you needed, and then you didn't have to pay for it until the next week. So it was the only business that you could start with no capital. So you'd go and sell and then you could pay for the week prior and then build to have more. Yeah, so my dad and his brothers all grew up in that fruit shop with, you know, immigrant parents. And then they all went to, you know, Rongatai College. Then they all became doctors. So, you know, they just obviously, I don't know, had something in them to make a better life for themselves. And obviously I've been pretty privileged growing up in the time that I have, not with that kind of hardship. But yeah, I think there's something in it that kind of makes you not take those things for granted. And similarly, on my mum's side, women's suffrage and like really pushing to be independent. I'm proud of them, you know. 
they've given me a lot of opportunity and freedom to do something creative and not have to worry about some of those constraints, which I just don't think you could have done, you know, some of the things that I've been able to do in those situations. They're amazing and and very supportive. Pressure. How do you deal with pressure? There must be obviously the daily pressure, but then there's obviously the external pressures as well. The real answer or the PR answer? (laughs) You you can choose. (laughs) Honestly, like, you know, you just cry sometimes. When I'm at home, there's always the sort of um, every now and then the 3 a.m. lying awake, am I crazy moment. But then, you know, it's fine. You let that out. You can. You reassure. You know, credit to my partner Jack for always being supportive in those situations and also my mum. So yeah, I mean, I think it just helps to have a team that is really supportive of that. And if something is getting overwhelming and that's obvious to people, there's always someone there, you know, cheerleading you on. And I think there's this saying we have at UMA, it's like you can spend five minutes in the deep end of the pool and then I'm going to throw you a pool noodle. Okay. Like, you know, you're good. You can have your moment, but, um, Let's just like pick ourselves up and move on. And I think it's absolutely fine to just like acknowledge pressure and be stressed out and then just know that you've got to keep going because, I mean, that's really the difference, isn't it, between whether you're going to be successful or not. Firstly, I love the pool analogy. (laughs) Love a pool analogy. Um, Speaking of a team, how did you get to create your team? Uh, where did they come from? Did you source them or how do you apply to, you know, be part of you, May? All sorts of random and weird and wonderful places. Um, so Adrian, who I mentioned earlier, my production manager, and now takes on some of the design. That was a random one. I was still in Dunedin, so very fresh stage of the business, like not even a real business almost. Um, so I'd made all these bags. I think it was about 60 bags, biggest order ever. Mine was blown, selling 60 bags. And then I realized like when I went to ship them, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to make dust bags for all of them, which I know doesn't sound like that big of a deal, <laughs> but it kind of was at the time when it was just me. So I put on Facebook, as you did in those days, um, does anyone want to come help me sew? or know anyone who would want to come sew, you know, 60 dust bags with me. And my hairdresser, Jamie, who ran a salon called Saibatsu, replied and said, I know this gorgeous guy. He was one of her team's partner's cousin who was just here on a holiday, but a three-month holiday to New Zealand. He had, like, this amazing background in couture, bridal wear, obviously knew how to sew a lot better than I did. Anyway, like, I'll see if he's interested. And I was like, okay, sweet. And I just did not hear back for, like, a week. Didn't know if he was coming or not. Didn't know his name. Didn't know anything about him. And one day, he just randomly turned up at the studio. And I was like, oh, you must be Jamie's friend. And he was like, yeah, yeah, cool. And I was like, sweet, let's go get a coffee, da, da, da. And he was like, yeah, I'll come help. I'm bored. There is limited things to do on this three-month holiday I'm on and then he just came back every day and then the second time I met him I was like do you want to move to Wellington because I knew he was you know good by that point and he didn't know where Wellington was and he just said yes and we just moved and lived at my parents house and he helped me sew everything and we've grown this team together and he moved from South Africa you know, wow. um, and he was just like, this is crazy, but I love this girl and I'm just going to help her do this thing. This is like, I don't know, one of those crazy things in life. I'm just going to do it. 
that's a long way of telling you, like Adrian was my <laughs> first amazing team member and he has been so instrumental in he's such a great teacher in building that knowledge and skill in the production team. Then, you know, Johan, who works with him in that production team as our New Zealand production lead, uh, did an internship from the New Zealand Fashion Tech. So a few interns, a few people who have just applied, you know, the regular way. But I think, you know, it's all about the personality and everybody really gels together. And of course, you know, like any family, there are things every now and then to sort out. But on the most part, I think everybody really respects one another. And, and that's sort of why they make such a great team. Mm. What is Yume's purpose or motto? Is there something you live by to be able to share that with the team? Yeah, well, I mean, we really want to create products that connect people and will last a really long time and have integrity in their supply chain. You know, we've got a regenerative supply chain that are by real people for real people. And I think that's really the crux of it and probably why so many people have gravitated towards the brand and, and love it and champion it so much. So yeah, for real women and for real people doing real things, um, but that doesn't mean it has to be a backpack or a canvas tote bag or whatever. And that's something that really speaks to your design sensibilities and that real I don't know, I just have a lot of pride in our supply chain apparently. But that integrity and knowing where things come from and how they're made I think is really important to us. Totally, and I think it needs to be spread more, in particular in New Zealand. You know, we do tend to go and buy you know, the cheaper items and they obviously don't last as long and we are better to obviously mm. buy sustainably and you're obviously proving that with your UMA bags and, and wallets. You know, as you say, the knowledge is getting better and better, mm. uh, but it's you're trying to prove a point to people that actually this is the way to be sustainable and we have to we have to practice that much more mm. today than we ever had to. Exactly. I mean, just living with a little bit less even, you know, and if you buy something that is of better quality and well-made, then when you no longer have a need for it, you can sell it on. And, you know, I've got a policy with my wardrobe, one in, one out. So if I ever want to buy something or I need something that I don't have, I sell something and bring something in. So it's always a tight edit and I don't have that much. My house is really tiny, so I can't. But um, I think, you know, more and more people are moving towards that and understanding the real value in buying things that will last a long time. Being 27 and having this huge investment in something that you just love and have a huge passion for, do you have other investments outside of UMA? I have a Sharesies account. <laughs> um, so that's just a bit of fun and that's just um, like a pocket money kind of AP that goes out every week and I just choose random bits and pieces. So nothing nothing significant. UMA is really my baby. Mm. What would be the advice you'd give for someone starting out wanting to get into the fashion industry? I always remember like kind of asking this to Frances Hooper from World and Karen Walker, I did an internship there. And I remember Karen telling me, you need to just be relentless. You just need to persevere and keep going. And I think, you know, sometimes, well, I also got told like, it's way harder than you think. And that is true. But I think just get started and you will learn along the way. And people are willing to, you know, the cheapest advice you'll ever get, it costs a cup of coffee. Just talk to people and, and find where you fit in your network and 
I think, you know, if that's what you love, you need to just do it and get started. Do you think someone's wanting to start out, the advice you've given there, do you think they need to have a background in fashion or have some skills in fashion before well, pro- It probably in? helps to have studied or have done an internship. I don't think there is necessarily one path. It really depends on the way that you learn. And obviously, you know, by the sounds of things, that's such a credit to you for being able to be that person who can network and do all of that. But if you're not that person, then I think it does help to go to fashion school where those relationships are kind of laid out for you and they'll do their best to connect you with whoever. And also learning the technical skills is important, but it's not absolutely essential if you have the right people around you that you trust. So I think it's different for everyone. I certainly found that doing internships helped me understand what was actually involved in a fashion business. So I was at Karen Walker when I was I think 15 or something, um, 27 names for a little while over the summer. And then I did a, a longer term sort of eight-week internship with Akira Isagawa, who's an incredible Japanese-Australian designer over in Sydney. I think that real-life experience does help, so either, either working in an industry or interning. But then again, I also did start like straight after I graduated, so it just really it depends on who you are and how you learn. Yeah, it's obviously evolved for you, like you said, organically and from such a young age, you know, learning to sew at 11. How does someone get to sew at 11? Did you get given a sewing machine? I did, yeah, my auntie. And I went to like Inverlochy Art School sewing classes in the school holidays and things like that. Although in saying, you know, I started straight after uni, there's probably so many things that I could have done in like half the time had I had a bit more experience. How do you deal with being in the public eye now? Obviously, you may as a nationwide brand and in Australia as well. Obviously, it comes with a bit of pressure from the likes of media and how people perceive you as the brand or or the bag as the brand. Mm, A bit of both, actually. It's funny because, like, I'm sure you know you never think that about yourself. So it's just like, oh, am I? Like, you know, but... I think, you know, we always approach things from a a values perspective and and the media have always been very kind to us. So yet to have any traumatising experiences, I'm sure there'll be one somewhere along the way. But I think, you know, honesty and um, just, you know, being your most kind of authentic, genuine self is all you can really do and just move through life and business with integrity and and just treat people the way that you would want to be treated and hopefully it all comes together. But I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not that in the public eye, so you would probably (laughs) know better than I. Well, you know, your bags are and and you are attached to your bag. Mm. Uh, I mean, you may is actually your middle name. Yes. Uh, Why the choice of uh, your middle name is the brand? So it's my Chinese middle name. So it's a generational name and all of the um, girls on my dad's side of the family have something Mei. So Ling Mei, Ho Mei, Mei Mei. And Mei means like little sister or like young girl. And then Yu means pretty jade or like beautiful. So it kind of meant like beautiful girl, beautiful young girl, something along those lines, loosely translated. I just liked it because it was obviously my name, but then also... It wasn't attached to really anything in the English language. So whatever we wanted to project onto it as a brand was possible. And those were really the only considerations. I was just kind of like, 
always going to have a brand called Yume and that was sort of it. I think people remember me telling them that in high school, which I don't remember at all, but my friends have told me since. And so I think it was just always there. I used to sew little labels into all of my collections and fashion school with Yume on it. So it was just, it was, it was what it was already. I love that. Do you think uh, Yume will expand beyond backs and wallets? Oh, well, I mean, never say never, right? I would love to explore lots of different areas. I think you have to be quite controlled in that and it has to be a really conscious decision. So if we do, I'm sure it will follow the exact same ethos of the bags and our heart and our focus will probably always be on those leather goods. But yeah, I mean, we have some pretty exciting collaborations coming up for 2021. So you may see some other products in there in the future and especially with our our new market store, which has been fast-tracked over the last sort of week or so, that is going to be a whole different experience for us in terms of retail because it's five times the size of our current footprint in Wellington and it's really an event space for hosting and there's sort of a lounge and a 12-seater dining table and a kitchen and the brief was really residential and there's an art gallery and we're going to celebrate. You know, our first project in there is going to be in February and it's with the Auckland Art Fair and we've commissioned a young artist, Ashley Tupaki, to do a work for the space. So there's lots of other areas and then Club You May has some editorial work there and we write articles and so there's a whole raft of things but I'm sure it'll it'll grow at some stage. Wow, I, I can't wait to see You May expand. Um, I love your products already and I hope mm-hmm. to see that obviously an incredible future. You're an incredible leader. I've loved being able to sit here and learn from you. Uh, The last question that I'll finish off is, who are you when you're outside of Jesse Wong, the founder of You May? Usually an active wear, you know, hosting a barbecue at my house or relaxed and uh, have a lot of fun kind of entertaining at home and having the whole team around or whoever. So, yeah, just pretty regular. (laughs) (laughs) Usually in a hoodie. (laughs) Amazing. Well, I wish you all the best for your career. Oh, you too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to chat. Thank you for listening to Outside the Lanes, a podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. I hope you have enjoyed this episode, and if you did, I would appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to Outside the Lanes podcast. It helps other people know that it exists. Thank you again to my wonderful guests. Until next time.